Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. On this episode of the podcast, I speak with Ainsley Fender, the CEO of Atlas. Atlas is a SaaS startup company, also with the Generator cohort here in Reno, Nevada, that provides a amazing solution for managing grants targeted towards economic developers and nonprofits. I'm excited to say I'm a customer and I use her software and it's really helping streamline our grant management process. We have a wide ranging conversation about her background, some of the challenges of being a female founder, the challenges of being in a small town trying to raise money and stay connected, you know, the benefits of Reno and just her overall experience with the generator. It was a great conversation, learned a lot, really excited, and I know Ainsley is going to go places. So on with the podcast. Ainsley, welcome to the Growth Pioneers podcast. Nice to see you. Thanks so much for having me. You know, it was really nice connecting with you at the generator the first time we met. And, you know, I really resonated with what you're doing. In fact, I think that's the fastest I've ever pulled my credit card out of my wallet to support a startup. So good job on that one. You, you were able to convert me in about 30 minutes. Yeah, it was the fastest ever. I honestly thought you were joking. That's not cool. You don't want to joke with an entrepreneur about buying their product. Well, I'll tell you what, just a good example of when your hair is on fire with a problem and you have a solution, how quickly people can convert. So, But before we get too much into that, you're the co-founder and CEO of a company named Atlas, and I will let you describe in more detail what it is. But why don't you give us a little bit of a background? How did you get to be in this place? Like, How did you end up as CEO of a software company? Yeah, it's a windy story. So, I mean, honestly, as it pertains to Atlas specifically, it started in childhood. So I grew up in and around grant-funded organizations, nonprofits, just in that environment. I was a musician. I was a ballet dancer. And that was just what I knew. And so I went to college for music, decided I didn't want to do that, got a degree in nonprofit management, decided I didn't want to do that, went to grad school for finance, decided I didn't want to do that. But then all these pieces sort of came together. And so I was a stay-at-home mom at the time. Like my oldest daughter was born in the middle of grad school, which is not a good time to have children. But I was home with her and I was just looking for something to do. So I started doing bookkeeping and financial consulting for nonprofits and didn't realize there was such a big market for it, that it was really underserved by CPAs and that they really needed a totally different type of of service and accidentally became an entrepreneur. And it started out very much part-time and within like two years, full-time business And I didn't really want to have a consulting firm. Like I didn't want to scale a service company really. And so I I started doing more and more grant management and building custom spreadsheets and dashboards and all this stuff. And it was basically a bandaid over a gaping bullet hole. Like it wasn't actually solving a problem. So that's when I was like, I mean, people start software companies all the time. It can't be that hard, which is not true. But at the time I was like, yeah, for sure. And I literally, I went to the local SBDC and was like, I'm going to start a software company. And they were like, oh boy. And they pointed me at the co-working space in my town. And I walked in and I was like, I'm going to start a software company. And they were like, okay, well, (laughs) welcome. And that was at the very end of 2019 and been growing it ever since. Well, I've just, you got to have that unbridled optimism as an entrepreneur. Otherwise you probably wouldn't do it. But I love the fact that you actually got directed and helped by your local ecosystem. I mean, that's always, as someone who's an ecosystem builder, it's really powerful. And, you know, I just think, again, perfect timing. I mean, we at Edon had just raised, we, we won a grant 
the person in our organization who who's been on the show many times, Brian, you know, moved on to work with the city, and so we had no one doing grant management. And I was like, how is it that we have a grant, you have a grant management software? It was like chocolate and peanut butter. Like immediately, I'm like, this is going to go great together. So just really fortunate, and I'm really excited. You know, so far it has been a really great experience. I really appreciate all your help on our team side. So how did you decide to build grant management software in particular? I mean, you have a lot of that history, but weren't you in the grant, weren't you managing grants before or you had an experience? Yeah, so I was managing grants as a consultant. And then actually after that beginning of starting Atlas, when I was a broke tech founder, I did some additional consulting work with the Ferguson Group, which is a massive grant consulting firm out in DC. But really it all boiled down to one situation. I had a client, it was my largest client. It was a homeless shelter and they were managing like 25 grants totaling several million dollars. Most of them federal. They had one person doing it. It was costing so much time and money. And by the time I left there, there were about five of us working on managing grants and they were still missing deadlines and it wasn't their fault. Just when you have 20 grants to do monthly reporting on, you cannot do that in a spreadsheet and you shouldn't, but it's also physically impossible. And it came down to one situation, one time where they were delayed by one day because someone was sick. This was during COVID and they missed out on a huge grant reimbursement and then almost couldn't make payroll two weeks later. And it was like, this is the dumbest thing ever that you can literally hamstring an organization because they don't have the ability to adhere with compliance standards with the tools they have available. So I started looking at different grant management softwares and a lot of them were just insanely expensive. They're very enterprisey and they charge you like their enterprise software. And they've got like 50 features, which nobody needs. So I was like, you know, what would it look like to take a radically different approach to go after the side of the market that's not being served, that's only using spreadsheets, strip it down completely to just the core features and charge accordingly. And it seems that there is quite a big market for that because people, they didn't know they were asking for that. And so what I hear all the time in sales meetings is people will say, someone's actually working on this. My God, like finally, which I think is a good thing. Just huge underserved market. Totally. No, I mean, honestly, when I met you and you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have this grant need or grant management need. I was concerned that you were going to say it was outside of our price point. And I got to imagine, you know, there's for our use case to be able to manage one or two grants, it's totally affordable. It makes perfect sense. We were doing it with spreadsheets. And one of the challenges is, you know, the person that was doing it left and then I'm going to go through and dig through all their spreadsheets and like look at their report. And now it was just not great. So to me, I think you really hit the mark for our need, but we're one unique set. So who do you think, you know, who is your ideal customer for, for this product? I mean, I, you know, obviously I, I'm a customer now, so I'm a good testimonial, but who do you think is really going to, who are you going to really build the business with? Yeah. So initially I thought it would be nonprofits and initially the software was built for nonprofits, but they are definitely not the main target. They're like the second one. The first one is economic development, not specifically state level or, you know, municipalities or anything like that, but anyone doing economic development, either getting EDA funding or just any of that kind of, funding that has a lot of KPIs around it and a lot of metrics that someone's managing because those are impossible to manage. And when you're segregating all that information, you cannot track outcomes back to financial information. It's just not possible. It takes too much time. And so the economic development agencies have that problem. But when I built Atlas, we also made it so that there's a funder side and a recipient side, which is a totally unique thing in the industry. So 
again, economic development agencies are usually being squeezed. They have money coming in, they have money going out. And so they're feeling this problem on both sides of the equation. And so we're a really unique fit for that because now they can manage input, output, and throughput, and then roll up reporting to the next higher level. So they're just a perfect wheel and spoke type of ecosystem. And, and we end up inside our system creating a great management ecosystem where one plus one equals three in terms of the data that you're actually getting out. Yeah, which is great. I'm really excited to take it, you know, beyond this first really basic grant to maximize those features. But I, honestly, I got to say, you just nailed exactly our challenge, right? Like we've got money coming in, we got money coming out. Being able to tie it back to outcomes is definitely challenging. I mean, the first grant we have is not exactly around that, but the next few are. And we're just, like I said, I think you really nailed it. So are you getting, how's it going for you? How's your traction coming together? Well, since we started Generator, we have grown 250% in eight weeks. So pretty good. Great. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And a lot of that has to do with just honing who our target customer is. It was it was taking months to close deals from our beta and, and things like that forward because we, we fully launched like the current version in July. So we we're still thinking nonprofits and it was just not happening. And as soon as we started experimenting with other industries that's really like i i'm about 80 percent confident we fit product market fit at this point which is like the holy grail of a tech startup yes no that's great i'm really glad that you have you know had such a positive experience i mean where are you from originally because i mean you're not a reno native you came all the way to reno which so where where did you come from Bloomington, Bloomington, indiana Indiana. yep middle of nowhere And although I say this kind of with trepidation, I mean, you came out here alone and you have some family back there. And I know that when I think about entrepreneurial sacrifice, you kind of come up for me as a person, right? Like, I mean, it's a real thing to, to have to separate from your your family and your kids to go follow your dreams. So tell me about, you know, how did you make that decision? I mean, it's such a, it's such a big decision to come out here. I'm curious, what, what kind of led for you there? So Atlas was out of money since April of this year. And I had literally the day before I got the call from Jared, the program director for Generator, I had actually reached out to the Ferguson group that I was doing consulting work for and said, hey, if I want to go full time, can I have a position? Like literally the day before I was about to shut down Atlas. I was like, this is it. Like we're out of money. I cannot keep like questioning whether I can pay my rent. And especially because I have children. And I was like, well, I guess that's it. And I had like spent the last week like on my couch, unable to like get off. I was just like, this is it. This is how it ends. And so then Jared called and I was like, crap, like, God, like I was almost done, but I couldn't, I just couldn't pass it. I mean, I applied to generator four times, so I really wanted to get in. And then I actually, I blame my three-year-old for me getting in because I went to do the final interview. It was like seven o'clock at night. And I went somewhere else because no one wants kids in the background while you're trying to pitch. And my three-year-old, she looked at me and she said, all right, like she was asking where I was going. And I said, I'm, I'm going to go beg people for money, basically. And she's like, here's what you do. Here's what you do. You look at him and you just wiggle your shoulders and you say, please. And I was like, all right, for sure. So halfway through the pitch, I was like, y'all, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I have to do something here. <laughs> like my three-year-old asked me and I've got to be able to tell her that I did it. And so I did. And they thought it was hilarious. And then when I found out that I got in, I was like, oh my God, I did it. I got it. I did what you said. I wiggled my shoulders. I begged. 
I did it. And she was like, oh my God, you did? <laughs> she was so excited. And I was like, yeah, but it means I got to be away for like three months. And she's like, that's okay. You did it. You did what I told you to. <laughs> yeah. so oh my God. I what think... a beautiful story. Oh, thank you for sharing <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's her fault. So that's why I had to go away. But no, I mean, my, <laughs> my kids' dad is also a business owner, but it's like a shop. And so my kids will go with him on Saturdays and go to the shop. Like it's a, it's a pool company. They do construction and they have like a, a shop too. And my six-year-old will actually sell products to customers. Like she will go in there and be like, you need this. And then rattle off all the reasons why they need it. <laughs> and they're around that and they enjoy it and they're very good at it. And so I think, you know, as long as, I mean, I talk to them every day before they go to bed, but yeah, it's really, it's really, really hard. And I've, I've been back and forth like three or four times at this point. But I mean, you know, every parent's goal is to create a life for their child that they never had. So at the end of the day, they're young enough that they're probably not going to remember this that well. And it's my shot at creating a different kind of life for them. So I had to take it. No, I think it's beautiful. I'm really inspired by that. I mean, I know people think that you see all the success for entrepreneurship, you see all the glory and all these things, but there's a lot of sacrifice along the way. And I think that's, this is just emblematic of that. You know, I didn't realize that you had, you were right on that edge and I've had those, those dark moments. And so I just appreciate all of the, the reality of entrepreneurship. It's sacrifice, it's high highs, it's low lows, it's the full gamut of the human experience. Yeah. One of my advisors told me one time that you'll have your best days and your worst days all in the same day and usually about five minutes apart. So if it really sucks, wait five minutes. <laughs> and if it's really I good, have one of those days. Oh yeah. Five minutes. <laughs> I think truer words cannot be spoken. I remember when I was in the paddleboard business, we literally, I got a call from REI and it's like, oh, yep, we're going to take that quarter million dollar shipment. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. REI, I've been working on this for the whole time. Hung up the phone. I had about 10 minutes and then I get a call from the factory. Actually, there's a huge problem in the factory and we're not going to deliver that product. So I couldn't deliver on the REI shipment. And I was just like, I mean, going from the high highs to the low lows in the same hour. That is why I will never do a physical product company ever. (laughs) But I have so much respect for people who do that. It's so hard dealing with like, you're dealing with so many people who you're at their mercy. But I mean, yeah, it really is like you will be on cloud 15 you passed cloud nine a mile ago and then something comes along and you're like dang it at this point i'm like i get five minutes i get five minutes to scream and cuss and cry and do whatever the heck i want and then on minute six pull yourself together figure out a plan and if you don't do that it'll crush you so you kind of just have to have a thick skin i get where you came from you know you you saw this opportunity came through the grant but there's you know in our conversations it sounds like there's like a deeper purpose behind why you built this tell me a little bit more about the why behind your product yeah so there's a few but the biggest one is that like i have a strong affinity for homeless shelters i was homeless as a teenager and so like i think if it had been another client that was having this issue it wouldn't have resonated quite the same way but it did and so Even like when I'm talking about the product with someone, I will always use a homeless prevention or a homeless shelter as an example. And so I think in one sense, I realize how severe it is to not be able to manage grants and then affect real human beings' lives who are already being majorly affected. But it was also like, I don't have that fear that a lot of entrepreneurs have where it's like, oh, I could run out of money and like not be be able to pay my bills or eat like, okay, then they're done that. Like scare me with something else. So it just doesn't, I, I think... Startups are all about risk tolerance. And my risk tolerance is very high if I believe in what I'm doing. And 
essentially I'm betting on myself. So, okay. I mean, that's a safe bet if you know yourself. Yeah. It's one of those things that really resonated with me. I'm like, wow, you have grit. Like you have entrepreneurial grit, like very few people that I've met. And I, first of all, I just really appreciate you sharing some of your personal story. I, I you know, when you came out here, I, I think you, you were like, okay, I gotta, I gotta really preserve cash flow. Maybe I'll live in my car. And we're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's not a good idea. <laughs> I had actually, so there's even more to that story. I actually borrowed money from my ex-husband to get out here. And I'm sure he was just like, oh, this is the best day of my life. Like she's coming crawling back, begging for money. And I was like, you can enjoy it. Just give me the money. And then came out here and yeah, I lived in the GSR parking lot for a week and a half. And it was great because the Burning Man people were just clearing out. So like nobody cared that I was there. And the GSR parking lot is huge. Like they shouldn't really care anyway. But yeah, I got woken up at like two in the morning one day and they're like, if we see your car here again, we will tow you with you in it. I was like, okay, I'll leave in the morning. I'm not leaving right now. It's two o'clock in the morning. But my dad was like, no, no, no. And like, I don't know, this is a huge deal. Like I'm one person. My car has space. I have a mattress for the back seat of my car. I'll just sleep on it. Like, just seemed logical. Thankfully, some angels and some wise guidance prevailed and we got you sorted out. So, I mean, this will honestly always be one of those like lore stories that I will tell in the ecosystem. Like, honestly, I was just, it was so, A, just, you know, you're, you know, again, the, just the, the grit, but then also how, for me, I mean, one of the reasons why I like doing this work in this community is it is a community. And, you know, having one of our entrepreneurs and mentors hear your story and be like, that's not happening. You got to stay in my place was really impactful for me just to watch. I mean, I know the guy is an amazing human. It just was one of those things where I'm like, this is what it means to help rise up entrepreneurs in our community. So thank you for creating the opportunity for that to be a thing. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think it's also too, like founders come from everywhere. They are not wealthy people from the coasts nine times out of 10. They're not people who are raising $500,000 friends and family around. I had someone ask me like, why don't you just raise a million dollars from friends and family? I'm like, I don't know who your friends and family are. But mine are not millionaires. And I bet that's true for most people. And so, you know, like ideas literally come from everywhere. And if you're stuck by having a place to live or proximity to innovation, that's ridiculous. Like there are major ideas that are not happening because there's no opportunity. I heard a story the other day that like a venture capitalist got in an Uber. The Uber driver said, what do you do? She said, I'm a venture capitalist. And he pitched her. And he's like, I've never had the opportunity to talk to a VC ever in my entire life. And so she just sat there and listened to his entire pitch. That could be a billion dollar right idea right there. You, you just don't know. You're tapping into something that I think is really at the heart of what needs to change in our country. You know, I think we're starting to see the coastal money and the coast and a lot of that shift. And I think COVID really accelerated this, kind of moving this around the country. But even before that, you know, you have the Startup America partnership, you had the rise of the rest, bus start. You know, there's this idea, like you said, there's opportunity everywhere, but the money and the talent and all those things or the money and access are not well distributed. It's actually hurting our country. I've, if you look at the number of startups are actually on the decline. And that's a real problem. And I think we're working with Right to Start and some other things to help balance that at the government level. But I think your story really speaks to this. I mean, there are ideas everywhere. And we need to find a way to get those out into the world. That's part of what makes America great. And that has always made it better. Yeah. And most people's first ideas are actual garbage. Like they're good, but they're, they don't go anywhere. Like the people who have like who grow a unicorn company 
it's usually their third or fourth. And so you have to have the opportunity to fail super fast and well, and like have a safety net underneath you. And what I talk about a lot is that when you have a back of the napkin idea, people are like, oh, like they will give you all sorts of ideas and they'll give you feedback. But as soon as you start executing, it's like Death Valley between pre-seed and series A, and there's nothing there. And a bunch of companies will get like a grant or a grant funded investment or something like that, that will get them about halfway through that. And then they run out of money. And it's not that they have a bad idea. It's that they just don't have enough money to get where they're trying to go. And the ones who make it to series A, they know someone, they get quick cash infusion. Even if the idea is like ends up failing, they just have access that other people don't. And so things like low code software building and fractional C-suite people, like all of these things that are coming out are going to help so much bridge that gap between like across that valley. I was actually, I was talking to an angel investor yesterday and she was like, that's the thing. Some people figure out how to build a bridge. They just don't go into the valley at all. They're just, they figure out how to build a bridge. And if you can do that, you are one of the few people and somehow you just wind up on the other side and it almost makes no sense how people make that happen. But cash infusion can make all the difference in the world. Totally. A couple things. I think you're totally right. I mean, I think that the barriers to entry are as low as they've ever been. I mean, I think that we could do more to lower barriers of regulations and fees to start businesses and things like that. But like from a, like you said, a no code, fractional, co-working, I mean, the, the knowledge is out there. It's largely democratized. The barriers have been reduced dramatically. But it is still it is still challenging, especially on the capital side, if you're not in these networks. I mean, I remember when we were raising money for Priya, my medical device company, I was in the Bay Area and we couldn't get venture money. And so we went out to find angel money. And I just we just braved a new trail. We were like, all right, I'm just going to go to any city that has something cool to do and see if there's an angel group there. And we ended up raising nearly all said and done, probably about seven million dollars in angel money over many years, just by going to like Tucson and up to some friends we had. And and I was well connected, sort of, but we just said, hey, like we just got to do it a different way. Yeah. And most of those people have a deal flow problem. Bring them deals and they will look at them. Like VCs, especially on the coast, they do not have a deal flow problem. You got a signal and noise problem. You can be the greatest idea ever, but you're going to end up on a stack of papers somewhere or buried in someone's email. But if you can get access to angels or angel syndicates or capital in middle America, they have a deal flow problem. So take advantage, especially if you're willing to move there. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, all that, I think all these communities have like woken up to this thing, which is like, oh, wait a second. Entrepreneurs really are the innovators. Oh, they are the job creators. Okay. How can we do that? And then, you know, I think we're still trying to figure out how to do that in our country, but I'm so happy they're having, you know, lots of conversations. There's a lot of contemporaries that are doing ecosystem building that have recognized that. So let me ask you, like, you said you applied to Generator four times. What were your What were you hoping to get out of it, and how's it been for you? Like, what's been your experience? Yeah. So the reason I applied four times is because me and Generator go way, way back. So I came up with the idea for Atlas in 2019, quarter one of 2020. I participated in basically an upskilling program that was run by Elevate Ventures, which is run by the state of Indiana. But Generator did the upskilling, like they sponsored it, and actually one of their partners, like this was like five promotions ago for her was running it. And it was basically like, this is a pitch deck. This is an executive summary. This is how you do it. Um, Like that was the whole thing. And it ended right before COVID lockdown. And then in the beginning of 2021, I participated in G-Beta, their pre-accelerator program. And we were going through our beta at the time. And it just like, 
it made everything make more sense. Like building a loan is super, super hard, but having someone there to be like, that's a terrible idea. That's a good idea is helpful as part of the whole fail fast thing. So I knew I needed money and <laughs> generator gives an investment, but I also knew that I've never met a single person at generator that I wouldn't have another conversation with. They're diverse, they're understanding, they're helpful. They have a huge ecosystem around them. They're all over the country. They understand people's needs. They're friendly to, to women and mothers and just non-traditional founders. So, you know, just keep telling me a little bit more about why you chose generator. Yes. Yeah, so Generator and I go way back to all the way to 2020 at an upscaling program that Generator was running. And then I participated in their pre-accelerator called G-Beta. And I really, like every person I had encountered was amazing. And I really just wanted to take more advantage of the ecosystem and the people that I had met because I just, like, I was not getting that same treatment from other accelerators that I was looking at. So yeah, applied for Generator four times, would not give up and finally got in and, and it has not disappointed. So very happy that I made the decision. That's great. And I mean, you know, obviously you traveled quite, I mean, it's very different from, you know, Indiana and Reno. What are some of the things you've really learned? It sounds like you've got to product market fit. You know, obviously you've got a customer out of it. Like what are some of the other things that you have really benefited from, from participating in the program? Being out of the Midwest has been the biggest one. So the Midwest is great if you like corn and soybean and happy Southern charm. If you're trying to build a SaaS company, it's really not the place for you. There's not a ton of resources. There's not a ton of people. There's definitely not a ton of capital, but being inside this echo chamber of no, 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 wears on you. And I came out here and every conversation I've had has either been a yes or I'm not a good fit for this, but I'll tell you someone who is. And that has been game changing. I mean, we have talked to state government agencies and like are having active conversations with multiple state government agencies and cities and people that are just like, this is great. We're having conversations in California. Like that's access you cannot buy. You have to have someone make that intro for you, especially as early as we are. Like there has to be some sort of social proof. And so being in Reno has given us that social proof and we've gotten unfettered access to places that I never would have been able to gain access to on my own. Yeah, gosh, you know, that just makes me really happy. I mean, one of the things, you know, we've been trying to build this ecosystem for a long time. And one of the things that we're really good at is we're really connected and people are really open and, you know, helping open doors. But it's, you know, it, it sounds great. And then it, at the end of the day, you really have to see if how, it, you know, if it, the proof's in the pudding. And it's just really happy that that's been your experience. You know, my experience being in the Valley was that was true there. I don't know, it's still true there, but I think it's got a little over financialized over there. But that was like the ethos of how to help entrepreneurs is reduce friction, open doors, make connections, do all of these things effortlessly to help support them because it's just hard. And so I'm just happy that that's been your experience here. I mean, we're trying to curate that. There's clearly a long way to go in terms of our capital ecosystems. But um, I'm really happy that you have found success here and that the program has been beneficial for you. So tell me a little bit about your experience in Reno. It was great to hear how the company or the community was welcoming to you. But, you know, what do you think coming from the Midwest? What's what's it like to be here? I love it. I would move here in a heartbeat if I could. And honestly, like when I heard I was coming to Reno, I was like, all right, desert and casinos. This is going to be weird, but it's totally not that. Any outdoor activity you could want to do is 30 minutes away. I mean, you can go anywhere. You want desert, you want beach, mountains, whatever. You got it. So I really like it. I mean, I literally walk everywhere. The weather's amazing. The city itself, like the people and stuff, I love the community. 
um, all the like tech events, like Tech Rally and Tech Alley and different founders have events. Like I went to one yesterday that Cycle put on. And I mean, it's just like, I don't know. It, I, I grew up in the deep South. So like that Southern charm is what I grew up around. And I did not expect to see it out West, but it is 11 well in Reno. Yeah, no, I'm great. I'm really happy you have that experience. I mean, you know, we're always trying to add, you know, enough events to make it interesting. And I think, you know, being close to the Valley, I think people just kind of bring over. It's not even a, a like they just kind of bring over how it was over there and, you know, inject that into the community. But then you get that kind of small town. I always kind of feel like we're a barn raising community. Everybody kind of rolls up their sleeves For sure. to help. And it- we were out in San Francisco, like the generator cohort was out in San Francisco last week and I hated it. I hated every second of San Francisco. I've heard it's gotten much worse in recent years, just like it's changed a lot and not for the better, but I didn't feel that sense of community. I, it's too big. There's just too much going on. Now, granted, we weren't actually in Silicon Valley or like Menlo Park or any of those places, but San Francisco proper, like I did not get that techie vibe. It very much felt like you are in a bubble. We're all competing. And I don't feel that way here at all. You know, it's unfortunate. I, I Look, I have the same experience. And I I lived in San Francisco in, you know, like 99, 2000. And there was very much a sense of this community. And I think it's just combination of things, you know, policy, probably over-financialization, a lot of things. I, I really think the city's lost its way. I, I wouldn't bet against it long-term. You know, I think it'll take, but it's going to take a while. I mean, the last time I was there, it was, in fact, last time I was there, one of the, we met with a, a co-working facility that we're looking at bringing over here for robotics and not in their parking lot, but in an adjacent parking lot, one of the cars pulled in, it was 1030 in the morning, smash and grab all their computers out of it. And it's just, you know, there's, it's just too bad because the Valley is special and I, and there's something about it, but it definitely, they need to go back to like first principles and figure out what it, what it takes to make it great again. And, you know, cause most of like what we've done to kind of think about how we build the ecosystem comes from our lived experience, starting companies in the Valley. And again, we don't want to ever create the Silicon Valley I don't want to be Reno to be the next Silicon Valley. It's not even a thing. Like I, I really kind of hate this idea of like Silicon Mountain and Silicon Slopes and all this stuff. I mean, unless you're actually doing Silicon manufacturing, it doesn't really, you know, Silicon away from manufacturing doesn't really make sense. I think we just want to be the best versions of ourselves. And like, what are our strengths? Like we're, it's friendly people, great, great access to outdoors. We're collaborative. We're never going to be a 6 million person city. I mean, we're going to be a smaller, you know, second tier city, first tier city, in a small package, maybe. I don't like that second tier. Yeah, and, and I think I think the important thing, too, is I agree with you. I hate the whole, like, let's be the Silicon Valley of X. Because what made Silicon Valley Silicon Valley is that they weren't trying to be anyone else. They took what they did really well and doubled down on it. Just like you were saying, like, no one even thinks of it as silicon manufacturing anymore. But that's, like, where all of our chips were manufactured. Like, that's how this happened. Going back to early tech days, like, around the time I was born, that's what they did there. And then it slowly became software. But Bloomington, Indiana, where I still live, like they're wanting to do very much like what is happening here in Reno. But it's like, do not make this the Silicon Valley of Indiana, because what makes Bloomington special is that it's a small college town and that it's homey and it's surrounded by fields. And that is what makes it special. And if you try to take the valley and put it there, first of all, everyone in Bloomington will leave. But second of all, no one from the valley will like to be there. And so it's about finding 
where you can accelerate your company and where you feel comfortable. And it just goes back to not everyone who builds a company is a wealthy young white man. That's just not the case. And so catering to that mentality is not going to work as a long-term strategy whatsoever. Totally. It's a, tell me a little bit more about your experience as a female founder. I mean, I, you know, I have a number of entrepreneurial friends in EO that, you know, that are women founders and, you know, I, you know, I've, I've read the data and it's not great. What's been your experience? Yeah, no, it's not great. It's horrible. Yeah. I've had the experiences that you see in the data. So the biggest one is the questions I am asked are fundamentally different. They're skewed differently. They're skewed for failure instead of success. And that is from those questions stay the same, whether a man is asking or a woman is asking. And that's the weird thing. That's what the data doesn't seem to make sense of is why is it that women asking the questions do the same thing? Is it that they're posturing? Is it competition? Which I don't think it is. I think it's they're trying to survive in a world dominated by not them. And so this is a conversation I have with a lot of other female founders. And there are things we will say in a group of predominantly women that we would never say in a group of predominantly men. And that is problematic because it's not that we're lying. It's that we're telling the truth in a different, through a different lens. And it's not that it's less true. It's just maybe not like, I maybe won't talk as much about like the long-term vision or strategy, or you get a group of women together. They're going to talk about their children. They're going to talk about what got them there. They're going to talk about all those things that happen when you get a group of women together. Just like when you get a group of men together, they talk about different things than when you're in a mixed gender crowd. But the advice and things, there's just this like wall up that doesn't need to be there. And I mean, I've had people say, how can you dedicate time to this? Because you have children. And I'm like, where are your children? They're like, oh, at home with my wife. I'm like, mm-hmm, thank her when you get home. Also, can I have her number so I can see if she's okay? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, just things like that. Or it's very common that I pitch to a room full of men, not a single woman there. And if I do pitch to a group of mostly men, the woman will be the only one who will say hi to me or acknowledge my presence. That's it. The men will just stare at me and pretend like I'm like niceties aren't a thing for human beings anymore. Uh, It's very, it's very weird. And I don't understand why it has to be that way or why my gender has anything to do with the quality of my work. Because those same studies that, that show that women get the short straw when it comes to tech also say that female founded companies produce way more. We get to revenue faster, like revenue, revenue positive. I think it's like, Men return like 30 cents on the dollar. Women return 80 cents on the dollar. And it's not that I think women are better than men. It's I think we realize that we're not going to get the same access to help. So we're scrappy where we have to be. And men historically haven't had to be as scrappy. It's easier for them to raise capital, all of those things. And so I think it's starting to shift. But I think just having differing voices, like living in an echo chamber does not produce a good product. No, I'm, I'm totally with you. And I appreciate you sharing your real experience. I mean, I really do. I mean, I think it's it's a reminder for those of us that are trying to build a community, how do we make sure all of the voices are being heard? And I, I got to say, I think that it's definitely a work in progress. There's a lot of work to do. We just got a talent retention program. I'm hearing that you're going to go back to Indiana, but hopefully maybe we can keep, you know, like a, a headquarters in Reno or something. But if you can, you know, there is this talent retention program, which is targeted pretty much for companies like yours. It's basically, it's providing some internships, paid internships by the university, but it's targeting women and underrepresented students in technology fields. So if you're looking for a 
developer or a graphic person or you know a STEM you know science person, they will pay to have them come into your company at like to the tune of like eighteen dollars an hour, which is great. Part of that just eliminate trying to eliminate barriers, especially you know you mentioned this whole friends and family thing. That's a real thing. You know, everybody talks about friends, family, fools, but you got to have those wealthy friends and family. And, you know, so just realizing, like, all of the different barriers that that are erected. So, again, I appreciate your candor on this, and I'm sorry that you've had to endure that. I think my sense of you is that it's not going to stop you. You're the person that's like, I'm going to live in the car. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to – so I want to bet on you just based on what I know of you. A lot of it, I was raised by a feminist father, and I have two little girls, and I'll be damned if I'm going to have some misogynist try to tell me what I'm capable of, and then tell my daughters that they're not allowed to have someone talk to them like that. Like, that's not fair. So it's one of those things. It was so weird. The first time a, a man ever said something that was like so much misogynist to me, I apologized for him. I thought like I tried to reframe. It. I was like, I'm sure that's not what he meant. Like, it was so jarring. And it took another man being like, ah, yeah, no, I don't think you need to be giving him the benefit of the doubt here. He said exactly what he said, and he meant exactly what he said. Because it's just like, you know it happens, but until someone says it to your face, it's shocking. And I thought I would have reacted totally differently, and I I didn't. I was just like, "Mm -hmm, okay, thank you for your feedback. (laughs) So, yeah, I I think it's it's changing. I'm so sorry. (laughs) It's going to take some time. Yeah. And I think what it's going to take is diverse founders now making it and becoming investors, because I don't necessarily think that we're going to convince people that are that blatantly biased, like talking to them is not going to help. Like if it hasn't helped up to this point, it's not going to do any good. And that's, it's not my job to change their mind, honestly. So I think it's just going to take time, like that shift, they retire and a new batch comes in and they are less white, less male, less cis, less het. <laughs> yep. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I met, God, it's been a long time now, but I remember meeting this woman at an ecosystem event and she was like, basically said something to the effect of, I don't even like the idea of the glass ceiling. I was like, oh, you know, tell me more. She's like, that presumes that the foundation is built correctly. We need to build a completely different foundation. And I think that's what, I think that's what you're saying. You know, we need to bring people with diverse backgrounds and diverse experiences. They need to be successful and they all need to be at the table. And I think what we'll see, and I think the data shows this, is that we'll get better companies, better innovation. It just, it's the evolution. But again, being in the midst of that, I just have a lot of empathy for you. I, I, you know, I've never experienced those things directly. And so it's hard for me to identify on a, an individual basis, but I know it's true. And I'm just a, you know, hopefully you haven't, you haven't run into too much of that here, but I'm sure it exists. No, I haven't. Well, and I mean, except for a few people, but on, they're older. And while that's not a justification, it's like, I'm not going to change your mind. And, and I think one of the things, and I try to look for like the good that's in this, like, oh, they probably don't mean it maliciously. Some do, some don't. But I think it's this fear that they're going to be replaced. Because if you have only men in an industry, you have really high quality and you have less high quality. And if the less high quality people are like, we're going to be replaced by these other people, then there's this fear that's there. And so like people like myself and and other women and just underrepresented founders, the thing I keep going back to is if we're sitting at a, in a boardroom, we're not asking you to give up your seat, pull up a chair. There's more than enough room. There's more than enough money. There's capital that's not even dispersed. There are customers that are not tapped into just pull up a chair. It's not hurting you at all. We're not taking your seat. We can all sit here. And so I think it's just this reframing of you don't have to lose for me to gain. We can all win. There's more than enough to go around. 
I'm with you. I think you've just tapped in. Like you've got all the you got all the features. It's like you've got abundance mindset, grit, determination, wisdom. That's what it's going to take for you to endure. I mean, you know, you're on the beginning. Well, I guess you're not exactly on the beginning stages, but you're definitely still in the early part of your entrepreneurial journey. And I think all of those things are going to continue to serve you well. So what's next? So you're about to graduate or go through the demo day here in December. What's what's next for you and the company? Going home to Indiana, which I'm still very sad about. And then we're at that point where, you know, like you can fly by the seat of your pants till like raising a seed round and then you need to buckle down and professionalize your operation or you're going to have a Adam Newman type of situation. And I will not be doing that. So I think it's a matter of what does it take to get to the next phase? And that is a board, like not just a board of advisors, an actual board that is being much more careful, not that we're not careful, but, and that's not the word I want to use, much more uh, deliberate about how we spend money and so much planning that needs to go into that rather than just like, yeah, we have to buy that thing. Just go do it. That is not how you scale a company. And so just really dialing all of that stuff in so that it's a well-oiled machine instead of a bunch of people running around like headless chickens, which is (laughs) what has happened up to this point. So that's, yeah, really just the difference between a seed stage company and a series A stage company is massive. And it's not just revenue. There's an entire operation that goes into that. And so preparing, if we choose to raise a series A, preparing for what that looks like. Yeah, it's like, I mean, you're definitely, as a leader, you're building the mountain underneath you as you climb it. And sounds like what I'm hearing is you're on that next big climb. So I wish you much success. I look forward to spending some time raising a glass with you at the upcoming, what are we actually calling the uh, the celebration night coming up? Yeah. The demo, demo day, day at the demo day. Yes. <laughs> Investor swarm demo glasses. day. <laughs> yes. Well, I will glasses. be there with you. Thank you so much. I'll put all the you know information on how to connect with you on the show notes. I really appreciate your, just your commitment to your mission, making the effort to fly across country to an unknown city and sleeping in your car, doing all the things that you've done to help build an amazing product, which I'm using and will help so many other people and will hopefully help you further your goal of really making grant money more effective in the world. So thank you for all you do. And uh, we'll see you in December or see you in a couple weeks. Yeah. Thank you so much. 